Exodus chapter 29 this evening, and while we're turning there, let me give you uh, an announcement again related to the Harvest Crusade coming up right around the corner and uh, announced this morning some of the needs that we have uh, in that area. Need for gatekeepers and uh, 20 people needed per night for that. Um, uh, setting up stadium chairs on the Wednesday evening before the crusade, 5, uh, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Stan State, 30 people needed for that. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of positions were filled, though not all the way this morning. And uh, resources and product sales, we've been asked to enlist 30 volunteers uh, to uh, man those tables and on, uh, for resource sales, men and women both, by the way, for Friday night only, that would be 4.45 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, also, there is a, a prayer team that's being established and, and um, a nice air-conditioned place for that. The weather's been fabulous, hasn't it? Haven't you thought, boy... Woo! would have been perfect weather for a harvest crusade. But the, we'll have the weather God wants us to have. And um, so, but they do have a place. I know that one of the churches that's kind of kitty corner to the campus there, uh, they're going to be beaming the uh, crusade into there for people for whom the, the heat might be a little too much if it is hot on those, uh, on those evenings, and then also for prayer teams to come together. So if you'd like to be a part of that, there's a sign-up list for that. Uh, all of these lists for signing up are at a table in the fellowship hall after the service, Harvest Crusade table. Pastor Garth will be there uh, with others. Also, we chartered a bus for the Sunday night uh, uh, evening of the uh, Harvest Crusade, the final night for, so it's for those that are in need of transportation. Sometimes as we get a little older, we've got some kind of a physical imperity or something, it's an impairment, it's kind of hard to get parked some distance away and get to the entrance and all of that, and the bus will help solve uh, that for you. So uh, the bus will leave the lot here, church lot, uh, at 4 p.m., return at 9 p.m. Tickets are on sale uh, for five dollars for that, and so we're going to make about we're going to make a killing on that bus, five bucks a head. Just kidding, it's about half of what the bus costs. Just want you to know that. And uh, but sometimes people sign up for anything, and if they don't put something down, they never show up on it. So uh, we want to have that bus be fully uh, used. So uh, be aware related uh, to that. We obviously uh, a week from this Sunday night, the Sunday night of the crusade. We will not be having evening services. Uh, we'll be all out uh, at supporting the crusade in prayer or service or attending it, bringing someone there, of course. By the way, there's uh, so stacks and stacks and stacks. There's a good supply of those invitations to the crusade out on the table in the fellowship hall. So keep inviting people uh, and invite those last, you know, friends and, and family members and all or neighbors that you haven't asked or, um, you, uh, and then of course best to bring them. But then as you're just going about town, handing it to, inviting someone, inviting someone inside of each one of those uh, invitations is it, is it uh, tells how to accept the Lord as their Savior. So it's not uh, lost at all, even if they don't go to the crusade. So uh, continue to grab those and get them out uh, into the community. Well, let's turn. Oh, you're already there, aren't you? Okay, here we go. All right, don't mind me. <laughs> Ooh. Well, coming here now to, to chapter 29 of Exodus, Moses, remember, he's, he's up on Mount Sinai, 
and uh, he's receiving instruction from the Lord related to the priesthood and a, a, an entire system of worship of him, tabernacle, priesthood, furnishings, all of these things. Why did God establish this whole uh, system? Well, he established it as a means by which he might be able to have a relationship uh, with people, and uh, that's kind of what we're looking at. He establishes all of this, but uh, a big part of the priesthood and the establishing of the priesthood is that it's all a picture or a shadow of the great high priest that he would send in his son Jesus. So as we looked at the clothing and the articles of clothing related to the priest, the, what they represented in the priest, then we saw uh, the greater thing, the substance that it symbolized concerning the greater high priest, our high priest Jesus. So now he moves in. God does in giving Moses instruction here in chapter 29 concerning a series of three sacrificial offerings that are to characterize uh, their worship of the Lord. And, and these three sacrifices were to be offered uh, by the priests in order that the priests would be consecrated, uh, be made holy, to be separated and in their function as priests in representing the Lord in the world. And the three offerings, as we'll see this evening, the sin offering the burnt offering and then the wave offering and so that's what we're going to look at tonight all three of them uh, speak very very powerfully uh, of Jesus now notice in uh, in preparation before God gets to these three sacrifices the Lord tells Moses and this is what you shall do to hallow them that is the priest for ministering to me as Priests, And so Moses is in charge of, of all of this, and uh, he's the one that is overseeing this process. Here's what you need to do for them. Here's what we're going to need, Moses. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish. Those are the three animals that are going to be sacrificed in the course of this chapter. It's interesting, the bull is described, and all three animals speak of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. No one sacrifice under the, the Levitical system could encapsulate the fullness of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It took three, it took three sacrifices and many other sacrifices and many other things to properly represent the fullness of what our Savior did for us on the cross. But these three uh, t bite off a pretty good chunk of that. So this bull represents Jesus as a sacrifice, the two rams. The bull is to be a young ram. We'll see a little bit later in the passage that uh, the bull is to be a young bull. The two rams are to be young rams. They are to be one year of age. All of them young. All of them in the prime of life. All of them having their whole life ahead of them, so to speak. And again, it, it speaks of Jesus. Now some of you are uh, in your teens here tonight. Some of you are in your 20s. Some of you are in your 30s. Some of us, you were in your 40s, some 50s, 60s, and on up. And sometimes when you're in your teens and you're in your 20s and those kinds of things, and you hear about Jesus dying at the age of 33, I mean, over 30 seems like, wow, they hardly had any time left in life anyway, you know, kind of thing. You know, just about on death's door. But when you, when you turn 52 like I am, and, and, you, and, and then as you grow older and older even than that, and you look back at 33, and you realize how young he was when he was sacrificed and, and crucified 
for our sin, right in the prime of life. And, and it was intended to be so. It's just a picture of these sacrifices. And these, this bull and these two rams were to be without blemish because they all spoke of the sacrifice that Jesus would make and he was without blemish. He was without sin. So you couldn't have one that was, you know, had, had these kind of flaws or otherwise it wouldn't represent him uh, properly. So Jesus redeemed, Peter writes concerning us, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Just as the Old Testament had pictured it would be so. Also, in terms of the non-animal sacrifices, they were also to bring unleavened bread. Leaven speaks of sin in the Bible, so this was to be uh, bread without uh, leaven, picturing the fact, again, that Jesus was sinless. Unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour, and you shall put them in one basket, bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And so these are all of the items that would be needed for the sanctification of the priest. And Aaron and, your, and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So we've learned about the tabernacle. It's supposed to be brought near into that courtyard outside of the tabernacle. And you shall wash them with water. We're going to read about this bronze laver that was filled with water that was there for the physical washing uh, of of the priest there outside of, of the tabernacle. So in this, it, it looks like in this initial uh, sanctifying of the priest, they were kind of immersed completely in the water. Now remember they've got their you know, linen breeches on. It's a very, very modest moral culture. So uh, it's not like a bath or something like that. So they're, they're, they're going all the way in. Later on we'll see that they just wash their hands and wash their feet following this initial kind of, of, a, of a consecration. Beautiful, beautiful uh, symbolism here. I think that as we look at uh, Jesus and, and uh, one of the th mystery kind of questions in the New Testament that people ask when they start to learn the Bible enough to wonder about weird things, which is perfectly fine. That's why we have Pastor Tom on staff to answer all those questions. And I sent so many people upstairs to talk with Tom. <laughs> they think I know stuff around here. Cracks me up. But sometimes people look and remember when Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, he was water baptized by John and it was a baptism unto repentance. And so people, people wonder, even John the Baptist said, what am, I, what am I doing water baptizing you? And Jesus said, in essence, you know, just relax, it, it needs to be so, go ahead and, and do that. But he didn't have anything to repent of. So why be water baptized? And I think there can be a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is maybe the fulfillment here of this kind of baptism or cleansing of the priest. He was beginning, remember, his public ministry at that point in time. So here he is, always fully sanctified to God and God's purposes, even in the 33, uh, 30 years of his life before he began his public ministry. But now a kind of special consecration for the next three and a half years, his public ministry would occur. And so he takes and gets water baptized as a fulfillment of this picture. I am sanctified in a special way to the Father's purposes here um, in, in the world.
And then he said, you shall take the garments, all of these garments that we looked at last week, and put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, of the, ephod the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him, gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown uh, on his turban. And so now all of these articles of clothing, you know, I've described them, and then when you do this ceremony, put those things on him. And you shall take the anointing oil, and then notice these next three words, pour it on his head and anoint him. Now, oil in the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit. And when it's poured on a person's head, it symbolized uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It symbolized, in the New Testament imagery, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus spoke to the disciples about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, he said that the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And the image is of this big vessel of oil just being poured out upon uh, your life, not just a little dab behind your ears and, you know, uh, that kind of a thing, but poured out on, on our lives. And, and so the priests were, gonna, were going to operate as priests. They were going to have their power to function as priests was going to come from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit being upon them. Now remember Jesus at his water baptism. Remember when he was water baptized at the beginning of his public ministry? What happened in conjunction with that? The Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove. I can't wait to hear some Bible studies in heaven that just talk about how tight everything related to the Old Testament was all about him all along. And it was a picture that Jesus was going to perform his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that when Jesus performed, for lack of a better word, his public ministry for three and a half years, he did not do that out of his deity, out of the uniqueness of who he was. He never ceased to be divine. But he did all that he did under the leading and the empowering of the same Holy Spirit that is available to us. Now what God calls you to be and me to be and for you to do and me to do in this world, completely different, uh, at least by degrees, isn't it, than what was required of Jesus and, and heaven had planned for Jesus. But it's the same Holy Spirit. He did all that he did and the power that is available to us as, as Christians. And so here is this anointing now with the oil uh, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And then you shall put, uh, bring his sons, put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual uh, statute. You shall, uh, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. And so this kind of, uh, they, they were now set aside for this work to represent God uh, there uh, among, among the people and, and to operate as priests. Set aside, consecrated. Here we go. And then in verse 10, he begins now with these, the first of these three sacrifices that were necessary to consecrate them. And he begins, first of all, with a sin offering. He said, you shall have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting. So it's to be brought from the outside into the courtyard. 
outside of the tabernacle where the, where the uh, uh, brazen altar is for the, for the offering up of sacrifices. So they were to bring it into the courtyard and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. So you imagine, got this one-year-old bull comes in, they all put all of their hands on the head of, of that bull. So we've got that pictured in, in our minds. And what they were doing is they were acknowledging before the whole world that they were sinners too. That they were sinners called by God to minister to other sinners. So it's a public acknowledgement of their own sinfulness, their own need for forgiveness. Before they could ever deal with anybody else's sin, they had to deal with their own sin. Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about the fact that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now one of the important things about this, because all of us are New Testament priests, every Christian is a priest, the Bible teaches, the importance of, of this it recognizing that I am a sinner ministering to other sinners is it keeps us humble uh, and it keeps us more gentle than, than we would otherwise be. Just that recognition that, hey, I'm in need of God's grace as much and maybe more than uh, anyone else. The old saying is, we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread, right? I think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And when God commissioned him, great prophet Isaiah, into his public ministry, and he said, spoke of that experience Isaiah did, and he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. And, and he was high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne. And the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And the one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. The house was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah said, he said as he saw this, Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He was conscious of his own sinfulness first in the presence of God, more conscious of that than the consciousness of the sin of the people. And that is a great qualifier for being used uh, by, by the Lord. So they take, they put their hands there on the head of the bull, and this symbolized their, the transfer of their sin upon the innocent bull. It's a picture of substitution. Now remember that word, substitution. It's an important one. It was a picture of substitution. It was also a picture of transference. Remember those two words in your Christian life. Substitution and transference. And it represented the substitution and the transference of the sin of the guilty to an innocent sacrifice. And as they looked at that bull, as they looked at that animal, they knew that animal was going to die in their place for their sin. That was their reality. That's what they were understanding there as they did this. And then notice in verse 11, we're told, Then God told Moses, You shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle 
of offerings. So they were to kill the bull, and they, they became, of course, very, very skilled at this. And the priest would cut an artery there in, in the bull's neck in order to produce a, a, a quick death for the bull. And the result would be is that all of this very warm, sticky blood would just begin to pour out of the bull and it would begin to weaken, it would begin to buckle, and then ultimately it would collapse in death. And no one who had their hands on the head of that bull and then watched it die as, as a, a, the, the death that they deserved, unless their conscience was completely seared related to sin, no one could, could look at that and not be humbled by the awfulness of our sin the awfulness of our sin, that my sin brought death to an innocent party. Now notice in verse 12, you shall take some of the blood of the bull, the sin offering, and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all of the blood outside, uh, uh, all of the blood beside the base of the altar. And you shall take the fat that covers the entrails, so they would begin to cut the bull up now, and they would take the fat that covered the entrails, the kind of the guts and stomach and all of that, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. Uh, so here you've got the bronze altar for the sacrifices, the fires going. These would be burned on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, the sin offering, with its skin and its offal, speaking of its bowels and its intestines and all, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Now, the flesh, the skin, the offal, uh, the dung, literally, the bowels, intestines, they were not to be burned on that altar. They were to be burned outside the camp. So the, re the rest of the sin offering, the part of the sin offering burned on that altar, the rest of it had to be taken outside the camp to be burned. And you say, why in the world is all of this was a picture of what the Father knew would happen concerning Jesus? He knew that Jesus would end up crucified on a hill called Calvary outside the wall, the city wall of the city of Jerusalem. And, and so because all of this is a picture of Jesus as our sin offering, uh, that's why he was led, Jesus was led outside of the city to be crucified at Calvary. Again, Hebrews chapter 13, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. And therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And so this offering, we're told there at the end of verse 14, is the sin offering. Now here's the symbolism of the sin offering. It's a picture of Jesus, of course, because he is the offering for our sin. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. That's known as propitiation. That's a good word for Christians to learn. 
uh, on things. Propitiation. It's a biblical word. John wrote it in his first epistle and he said, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. He is the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed these bulls and goats. They could never wash away sin. They could never take away sin. They were what is called in the Hebrew a kofar. They covered people's sin. Jesus, the greater sin sacrifice, is able to wash our sin away. Again, John said, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the whole world so we're going to take communion in just a little bit tonight and when you see Jesus hanging on that cross you look and see every single hand in human history reached out and put on his head as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the transference the substitution I think that it's very, very interesting to realize that, again, as I think we looked at last week, at the giving of this law regarding the sin offering was given 1,500 years before Jesus came as uh, the, the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. So for 1,500 years, God had been using this sin offering in order to drive home the concepts of substitution and transference. Substitution and transference. Substitution and transference. Every time the offering was offered, there was the recognition that the forgiveness of my sins has occurred at the expense of the death of of an innocent substitution that my forgiveness and salvation has occurred because the Lord has made a way for my sin to be transferred to an innocent other that is transference so for 1500 years the Lord's been driving home the point among his people that I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. I'm forgiven on the basis of su uh, uh, substitution and transference. Substitution and transference. Why? So that when Jesus came on the scene as their Messiah and then declared that the cleansing of their sin would occur on the basis of substitution, him dying in their place and transference on the basis of faith they should not have acted like God had just pulled a rabbit out of his hat they've been prepared for a long time to recognize that this was God's way and this was God's plan it was not some kind of a foreign concept that Jesus just showed up on the scene and was springing upon them God had been preparing them for it for 1500 years it's very interesting to read uh, Isaiah chapter 53 with the idea of trans substitution and transference Isaiah 53 let me just read a little section of it to you Speaking of Jesus and his, his sacrifice on the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Transference. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Substitution. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, substitution. And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, substitution. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken substitution yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin substitution he will see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities transference and therefore I will divide with him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many substitution and he made intercession for the transgressors and John the Baptist got it completely and that's why he spoke to his disciples when he saw Jesus coming he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world don't think people didn't get it when he came on the scene steeped in the scriptures he got it he saw the substance of the shadow is, is on the scene right now. You guys better move away from me and move to the one that all of this has been talking about, to Jesus. He's the one who's going to die for our sins in our place. The sin of the whole world is going to be transferred to him. Now, in line with all of this, Jesus declared, he said, I am the living bread that's come down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, I shall give, is my flesh, which shall, I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Substitution. I mean, the Old Testament roots related to everything we're reading in the New Testament. He said, as the, Lord know, uh, know, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now you put yourself in that ancient courtyard of that tabernacle. And you put your hands on that young bull. And then you watch that knife plunged in. You watch that warm blood come out of that bull. And then you watch that bull be cut up in pieces and I mean as you look at this whole thing that's being described there to me in verses 10 through 13 I mean it all of it the whole thing is is you're right in the middle of it it just seems designed to produce a profound sense of horror that the people that are watching it would just be stunned and they would think to themselves something seems to have gone terribly wrong here there seems to be something completely and terribly backwards here. And the whole scene is intended to do it. 
And as they stand there at the tabernacle in verse 10, here's this young living bull standing there breathing all in one piece, innocent, and yet before their very eyes in just a matter of minutes, it's slain, it's bled, it's gutted, it's cut in pieces. It doesn't even look like a bull anymore. And all because of their sin. And yet they get to continue to live. It's backwards. How does this work? Why would it be this way? And all of it is the way that it is because it's just a faint shadow of Calvary. It's a preparation for Calvary. Where Jesus hangs on the cross for my sins. And He hangs on the cross for your sins. When the day began in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's breathing, He's healthy, He's whole, He's innocent. But in a matter of three hours, though innocent, He is hanging on a Roman cross. And His face, the Bible says, is so savage, He's unrecognizable for who He is. And His entire body is so brutalized that it's nothing but one great, open, bleeding wound. The words of the Holy Spirit, again in... Isaiah's prophecy, just as many were astonished at you, speaking of Jesus on the cross, so his visage was marred more than man, any man, and his form more than the sons of men. We've sung about that cross tonight. And we've sung about Jesus on that cross tonight. And when you look at him and realize that this is not merely a bull or a ram, that this is not even merely a man upon that cross. That would make it horrible enough. But it is the Son of God. And it's intended to produce a question within us. How is it that He dies and I get to live as a sinner? And the only explanation is the love of God. The love of God for sinful man. God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. How? I, that is, you look at the cross of Calvary, that is how much God loves us. The desire of a father's heart to save us from the penalty of our sin past, from the power of sin current in our lives, from the very presence of sin one day into eternity beautiful, beautiful picture of Christ. Now notice the second sacrifice in verse 15. And you shall take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, uh, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. And then you shall cut the ram in pieces Wash its entrails and its legs, put them with its pieces and with its head, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. So you had the sin offering. Now you got the burnt offering. As important as Christians to understand what both of those things are, and I mean just to be part of our working knowledge of the Bible, the burnt offering was an offering of consecration. Always when you read about a burnt offering in the Bible, the entire offering is burnt. It's completely consumed. 
The priests don't get a portion of it. Nothing moves outside of the camp. Nothing. The entire sacrifice is put on that altar and it is burned until it is consumed and it's gone. And what it represents is a complete dedication of my life to the Lord. A complete consecration of my life to the Lord. And it's interesting that it's spoken of after the sin offering. We cannot make ourselves acceptable to God on the basis of any kind of personal dedication we might have uh, to God. But once the sin offering's been offered, once we've become Christians, now the issue isn't a matter of uh, earning our own salvation. Now in response to the free salvation He has provided to us, what is the great desire and the heart of anyone who's received a gift like that? Now my desire is, God, I give you my life. I give you all of my life. You ye- use it from top to bottom, inside and out, for your purposes. You bought it. It's yours. Lock, stock, and barrel. That's the burnt offering. It's, a, it's an offering of, of consecration, committing everything to, to the Lord, that complete surrender. I like when Paul, and he speaks of it, and I think he's thinking of all of this when he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a a living sacrifice, holy, which is acceptable to God and is your reasonable service. For 11 chapters in the book of, of Romans and all, what's he been talking about? The cross. He's been talking about the sin offering, about Jesus on the cross. And now he begins chapter 12, and what does he do? He heads to the burnt offering. Now, understanding all about the sin offering, understanding what Christ has done for you, what's the reasonable response to that? To give my life as a living sacrifice to him. See, God doesn't want us to take, now God has forgiven us, he's given us life, and and we give our life to him. Obviously, he doesn't want us to be burned at the stake on an altar or something like that. He's got plans for us. He's going to use us for the rest of of this life. But our lives should be as fully committed to Him in His purposes, as, as freed up from my own will and my own purposes, as if it had been burned all the way down into ashes as a burnt offering. It's to be His completely. And, and so that's the proper response to the sin offering, the proper response uh, to salvation. So here we have the privilege uh, in the burnt offering, the privilege of consecration, the privilege of being able to live my life now for God. You know, you think about, what if God had just stopped with a sin offering? I'd be satisfied. I'd be thrilled. I'm so happy I'm forgiven. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so happy that He... He gives fresh starts and that He makes us into a new creation so we don't keep hurting ourselves or hurting other people or those things for the rest of our lives. Now, He could have done that. He could have just said, all right, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to make a way to forgive you, but you're going to have to leave you, live your same old stinking, you know, sin-dominated, selfish life for the rest of your life. I'm not going to provide you for a salvation from that. Well, I would take that. But he's done a lot more than that. He's found a way to, again, free us 
and, and deliver us from the penalty of sin and the sin offering, but then also the power of sin through, through the burnt offering. So it's a privilege to be able to live for Him, to live a life that is dedicated to God. That's why the Bible says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so this offering, as we would lay our lives down, is an is a offering of, of, of complete dedication to the Lord. It's described as an offering that brings a, a very sweet fragrance to God. It's a beautiful fragrance that comes up from that kind of a life, right up to the throne uh, of God, and, and it brings him uh, pleasure. Now, the burnt offering also speaks of Jesus' complete uh, devotion uh, to the Lord, uh, to the Father, obedience to the Father, his willingness. So he fulfills, he's a fulfillment of the burnt offering. Remember, uh, it, it, speaking of his complete obedience to the Father, he being a burnt offering to the will of the Father, he said, For I always do those things that please the Father. He spoke in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was praying on the morning of his crucifixion to the Father. He said, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. So to live our lives completely dedicated to the purposes of God in this world is to live a Christ-like life. It's the greatest life to live. Now notice here as we uh, continue in... Uh, uh, verse 19, we pick up the third sacrifice. And you shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of, of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons and on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of their right foot and then sprinkle the blood all around the altar. And so as they would then take the blood from that sacrifice, they would apply it. It's very, very interesting. Take the blood, the, the blood, they'd apply it to the tip of the right ear of Aaron. And that symbolized that Aaron and the priest, that their, ear, their ears were dedicated to the things of God. Turned off. The ear represented the, all of the senses, all of the gates into the heart and into the mind. Couldn't put blood on the eye, which is a gate, or in the mouth, or any of those kinds. So put it on the ear. So it's the, it's the consecrating of all of my senses. God, I don't want anything to come into my heart and in my mind from the outside that isn't, isn't holy and isn't about you. As they would put the blood on the thumb of the right hand, that symbolized the consecration of their life to do God's work. I want my life to be used to do your work upon the big toe of their right foot, it was saying, Lord, I only want to walk in your ways and in your paths. So this physical thing would be a, a, a constant kind of, rem, a regular reminder to them of that, that my heart, my mind, my ears, that's set aside to the Lord. My hands, my doing, that's set aside to the Lord. My paths in life, that's set aside to the Lord. It's all about the Lord. That's a good remember. It's a good rem, uh, reminder, isn't it, related to, uh, to our lives. And so it symbolizes that kind of, of dedication, the recognition that now all of my life is completely blood-bought. So, wow, that's kind of radical. It is, it is pretty radical. I mean, one of the most challenging verses in the whole Bible to me 
is Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul clearly saw himself with this. This was the level of his dedication to God, consecration of his life to God and to God's purposes. And And he writes there, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And there's no more me anymore. This is about Christ. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's just tracking right along with the offerings of the Old Testament here. And so the, the, this was how it was to be applied to them. Then they were to take some of the blood that is on the altar, some of the anointing oil, sprinkle it on Aaron uh, and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall then be hallowed or made holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Now this is wild. This is so wild. They were to now take the, the uh, blood and to take the anointing oil, mix those things together or, or apply them uh, perhaps even separately. And the blood and the oil was now to be applied to the priest and to their garments. We read about all these garments last week. The, the, the value of the jewelry, the gold, the the thread that was used in the making of the garments, these artisans that God raised up and anointed with His Holy Spirit to even make these things. These garments that they are wearing are priceless. They are indescribably beautiful. And at this point in time, God covers them with blood and oil. I mean, it's just so weird here. Covers them now with all of the blood and the oil, and you look at it and you say, why? What is the meaning of this? And the meaning is, is that as wonderful as the garments were, as wonderful as the tabernacle was, as wonderful as all of the furnishings were, they are nothing without the blood and without the oil. They are nothing without the sacrifice of Jesus. They are nothing without the power of the Holy Spirit. And you, you look at today the trends of what's going on so often in, in the church today, and a lot of this stuff is being driven by Christians to the world and all of this kind of thing. And there's such a concern for the tabernacle and the furnishings and the ephod and the tunic and the sash and the breastplate and the buildings and the candles and the tapestries and the lights and the camera and the action and the incense and the artwork and the sound system and the music, but they have no blood and they have no oil. You build this nice little thing and said, this is a nice little thing, it's cost us a lot of money, it's beautiful. Don't you be throwing blood on this and don't you be throwing oil on this. But you don't have a church without blood and you don't have a church without oil. It's a great mistake that's being made. And we need to educate ourselves to steer away from this. It is the blood of Christ that makes a church. And it is the oil and the leading of the Holy Spirit that makes a church. You have no church without those things. Beautiful imagery. The Scriptures 
And so you look at the Old Testament here and people complain, don't they? This is a bloody religion, blood everywhere in the Old Testament. All of this, you look at this Old Testament scene, there's blood, blood, blood everywhere by God's design. Do not deny people the horror and the power or the glory of Jesus' blood-covered sacrifice on that cross. It is a bloody religion because it took the blood of the Son of God to provide a way for the likes of you and me to get into heaven one day. And it was the only sacrifice that could make it so. Beautiful picture of Jesus all the way through. And also you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys, and the fat on them, the right thigh, for this it is the ram of consecration and one loaf uh, of bread, one cake made with oil, one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord, and you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. So they were to take all of this offering and they would wave it to the Lord. And they would wave, they would wave it to the Lord four times in the four directions. And what it was was an acknowledgement that everything that they had came from, from God. And this is, uh, this is called the wave offering. And it's kind of a subset of what is called the peace offerings. Now, and he said, you shall receive them back, verse 25, from their hands, burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. So this particular section of the offering, one section would be waved before the Lord and then be consumed as a burnt offering on, on, the, on the altar. But then another section of that particular ram would then be given to the Levites let me mention a couple things before we get into it here's the imagery this is what God is is talking about here remember the Levites when they go into the land and, and possess the land they don't get a piece of the land like the other 12 tribes they don't have a place to farm or to raise cattle or any of those kind of things their tribe was completely dedicated to the worship of the Lord the spiritual influence among the nation of, of Israel that's what they were to do so God made a means by which he could support the Levites from the blessings that he was bringing into the other 11 tribes which means portions of the sacrifices that would be offered to God some and some sacrifices not the burnt offering and not the sin offering but peace offerings a portion of that would be offered to God and then a portion of it would be given to the priest so that he could eat it and because that offering, a portion of it went to uh, the Lord and a portion of it went to man. It went to the priest. It's, it is, uh, it's known as the peace offerings. What you've, what you've got is a relationship. They're eating uh, from the same animal, so to speak. They're eating from the same grain. They're sharing the same meal. The peace offering speaks of relationship. So in the three offerings, what you've got is you've got a sin offering, you've got the burnt offering, consecration, and now you have relationship with God. And this is what Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. He's, he has made a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us now to dedicate our lives to the Lord. And once we've received Jesus as our Savior and we've dedicated our life as a living sacrifice to Him, now we have fellowship with God, relationship with God. God could have forgiven our sins. He could have given us the power to live free of our sin and not allowed us to have a relationship with Him. 
But God knew that when He sent His Son, He's going to provide forgiveness, He's going to provide the power to live a different kind of life, and He's going to provide a way for us to have relationship with Him. And it took all three sacrifices to bring all of that together. And so that's what's happening here. Sin offering, burnt offering, peace offering, or wave offering. And then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration, wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, that of that which is for Aaron, of that of that which is for his sons, and it shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever, for it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is their heave offering to the Lord. And the holy garments of Aaron and his sons after him, uh, they shall be anointed in them to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. And you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains in the morning, you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy." And thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them. And you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it. And, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar must be holy. So so this whole means of consecrating the altar and the priest. So he finishes that section now and then speaks of a new offering, burnt offerings that were to be offered up to God uh, uh, every single day, morning and evening. Now the burnt offerings, as we look at them for a moment here in verse 38, the burnt offerings being offered uh, to God each morning and then at twilight, that kind of became the foundation of the Jewish uh, whole uh, religious system and expression of their love uh, toward the Lord. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year. Again, picture of Jesus. Day by day, continually, these offerings were to be offered every day. One ram you shall offer in the morning, one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So they're burnt offerings, uh, as we're going to see in just a moment. So they speak of consecration to God. When these lambs were offered once in the morning, again in the evening, it was an expression of the whole nation of Israel. We are your people. We are consecrated to you. You can use our lives however you want in this world. And so by doing it, offering it in the morning and in 
in the evening. God knows us, doesn't he? He knows that we need to consecrate ourselves to the purposes of God, uh, not only in the morning, uh, but also at twilight, which would be maybe four or five o'clock, uh, according to their kind of religious calendar on things. So there, it's a picture of the fact that we don't just offer ourselves to the Lord once and for all when we become a Christian. That's great, and, and that needs to happen. But there's a daily, even multiple times during the day where I say, Lord, is, you know, you're getting ready to go to sleep. Lord, I'm so glad I'm yours. I'm, I, just, I just dedicate my life to you just one more time today and then head off into sleep, begin the day in, in the same way. That fresh surrender, morning and evening. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour uh, mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and you shall offer uh, with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be, and then notice it, a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where I will meet you to speak with you. And then in light of all of this, God makes a promise now to, uh, of his continual presence. He assures Israel, in the light of these sacrifices now, I can maintain a continual presence in your life. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And so I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them uh, up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God promises his complete commitment to them in this personal relationship. Why? Why at the end of the chapter and not at the beginning of the chapter? Because he is only able to make this commitment to his people on the basis of a sin offering and on the basis of consecration, on the basis of dedicating our lives to the Lord. The sin offering allows us, that's the basis of our relationship with God. Can't have it without a sin offering. And if our lives aren't dedicated or consecrated fully to the Lord, then what's it, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be constantly grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit. There'll just be this two steps forward and one step back, two steps forward and three steps back in this relationship with God, and the relationship will never bloom. But with salvation and then a consecrating of my life to God and His purposes, now that relationship can be as intimate as, as God wants it to be. Beautiful picture, uh, beautiful shadow, but it gives us great insights and, and uh, uh, an appreciation for the beauty of what we have in Christ. Well, we'll stop there tonight and, and uh, enjoy uh, communion this evening.